0: 303, Chapter 36 of Jane Eyre. Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 303, I Packed a Car in Boston. This episode brought to you by Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter delivered to your mailbox, bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at www.knitcircus.com. And links to all of our sponsors can be found in the sidebar of the show notes at craftlit.com. Please visit them as their support for the show is one of the things that keeps it free for you. Well, actually, I didn't exactly pack a car in Boston, but I did have a marvelous time. The Common Cod Fiber Guild is so awesome and made up of so many awesome people, and they get to hold their meetings at MIT which, I mean, how cool is that? I can say I spoke at MIT and not entirely lie, which is so fun. And I got to have a a lovely meal out with Common Cod people. And then I had a lovely meal out with Kathleen and her husband. Kathleen is one of the Defarge designers who has all sorts of good stuff cooking up for you for the next Defarge book as well. And I got to see a little bit of the Old City, I finally got to see the Old North Church. I built a paper model of the Old North Church in fifth grade. It's a long story, but I've wanted to see it ever since then. And I did, finally, at 46. It took me a little while to get there, but loved, loved, loved Boston. Loved the people, loved the city, loved the place, loved the food. All marvelous. And if you are in a guild... And would like me to come speak or teach for your people, I am more than excited to do so. Uh, The speech, the talk, I guess it's more of a talk. The talk that I gave at MIT to the Common Cod Fiber Guild was about knitting in the mind. And how knitting both affects your mind and how your mind affects your knitting. And why your bosses should allow you to knit at work. And I actually found scientific proof. For why so that is all it's all prepared all ready to go if you want me to come out contact me heather at craftlit.com and let me know and I am I'm also slowly working up an ebook version of the talk I gave because it's useful information I think to uh to have at your fingertips a little scientific data background for you I was busily knitting lots of sock heels before Boston, but after Boston, on my way home, I started a new pattern called Surf Escapades. It's the only thing that I got at Maryland Sheep and Wool. My husband bought me the pattern. And then I'm using, uh, they were out of their recommended yarn, but I'm using uh, some mini mochi that looks like, very much like, actually, the yarn that the uh, company that puts out the pattern recommended. And they are... By the way, in case you are interested, Caradan Farm. They're on Chincoteague Island. And lovely people. Lovely people. We had a lovely time talking to them. But the pattern is actually by Jacqueline P. Jones. And uh, I think she did a lovely job. It's a little shawl. It's not even a shawlette, it's a shawl. It's just not very deep. So it really does just cover your shoulders, but because it uses short rows rather cleverly, it hangs nicely. At least it did on their model and the the pictures. And uh, I hope on me, but I'm flying along with it. I'm more than halfway done. And I only started it a few days ago. So I am pretty happy about that. I am also stuck. I'm in a conundrum. I'm on the horns of a dilemma which always makes me think of that blog hyperbole and a half. This is my a lot. I have a problem in that my son asked me to knit him a pattern. I did to make a pattern for him. I did, and it worked, and it's really adorable, and now all of his friends want them. And I told him that I would teach his friends how to knit, but I would not knit them all these toys. However, the pattern is based on a character from the story Homestuck. Homestuck is a blog story that has been running since 2009. It has over 2,000 entries in it. It's massive. And the guy who writes Homestuck or wrote Homestuck, because I think he's pausing right now, he merchandises. And I have emailed him saying, hello, can I please share money with you? I wrote this pattern. Isn't it adorable? Can I sell it and give you some money? Or do you license your images? Or help. I've written to him a number of times now and haven't heard anything back. I think he probably thinks that there's no money in knitting patterns, which is kind of true, but there are three million knitters on Ravelry, and I made that point to him before. So I'm wondering, A, do any of you know how to get a hold of this guy? B, if you if you want a squiddle pattern, because that's what I wrote, a really adorable fingering weight squiddle pattern, uh, you're going to have to help me lobby him to to pay him money so that I can sell a squiddle pattern. He has an email address. He has a link and I've emailed him there. It's a Gmail account. So I don't know. I don't know what to do, but I love this little pattern and I want you to have it. <laughs> I want to send it to the subscribers. Ooh, subscribers. Chaucer, we're doing more Chaucer. I'm on a Chaucer kick. We're getting all of the characters done. So download only, only subscribers. You will see it shortly. And streaming subscribers, you should have already seen it. And I have new plans and new texts that will be coming shortly for subscribers. And, and next week I will announce for certain and for sure what our next book will be on Craftlit and just the books. Well, today, before we get to Jane Eyre, I have a special surprise treat for you. I have an interview with Hunter Hammerson. Now, you may recall that ages ago, Hunter donated her colophon pattern to the show as one of our happy promotional things uh, way back when we were doing little free patterns, Uh Her patterns are gorgeous, and she went on to do Silk Road socks, which many of you are familiar with, and then she started doing her Knitter's Curiosity Cabinets. And she's also had patterns in the Defarge books since the beginning. Her Cthulhu socks are Cthulhu weights is in um, those socks are in the very first Madame Defarge book, the black and white one. You can see pictures of those socks on the show notes, and. Then in this new Defarge book, What Else Would Madame Defarge Knit, she has a smashing hat and cuffs pattern. Very 1920s, very stylish and cleverly constructed, and it really looks good. So she is about to release her next knitter's curiosity cabinet, this one all butterflies and moths, safe moths, she'll explain, and she and I had a little chat this week. Well, you've done Knitter's Curiosity Cabinet volumes one and two. And this second mm-hmm. one is, is all butterflies or mostly butterflies? Okay, so uh, there's this weird distinction and it, it between
1: butterflies and moths. And in, in English, you say butterfly or moth. In some other languages, it's all one word it's for those critters because they're all part of the same family. So technically, some of them are butterflies and some of them are moths. But I checked, none of them are the kind of moths that want to eat your wool. Um, they're all <laughs> moths. That would, no, I'm serious. I looked because I'm like, okay, these creatures are really, really pretty, but I cannot have yep. a critter in here that, that wants to go eat your wool. That, that would just be bad luck. That it, would, be wrong. it would bring bad luck. Yep. So they are all the sorts of moths that would much rather, you know, eat your, your, your flowers or your plants. The, the the second volume is all is all butterflies and moths. But but I have checked. They're all they're all well behaved. <laughs> yeah, these, the these are the things you worry about. Like you, you wake up a few days before and you're like, oh, what if I put some terrible wool eater in there? Let me go check. But so I think so far we're safe.
0: That's excellent.
1: Right. there's, there's no reason to invite them in.
0: Exactly, so but the first the first knitter's curiosity cabinet that was that was all flowers, correct?
1: Yeah, that all, all of the so the way the knitter's curiosity cabinet was worked is I found all of these absolutely marvelous old natural history prints, and these are they were done at a period in time when the sort of scientific community was really working hard to figure out okay how are we going to classify the huge range of things that exist on this planet. You know, how are we going to come up with an organized way to talk about them and to describe them? And you couldn't just pull out your cell phone and snap a picture and, and you know, email it to somebody. You had to draw off these things. And so there are these absolutely wonderful joints. And they're they're, I think they're art objects. I mean, I really do want to, when I'm done with all of this, take them and frame them and put them on a wall. But they, they seem like a really good source to use as kind of an inspiration for patterns, Because I don't know about you, but I find it is so much easier to be creative if you have a structure to work with them. It's easier to have a dinner party if you have a theme. It's easier to write a book if you, if you pick a unifying theme for that, too. Right. So for the first one, I found all of these wonderful botanical prints, and I worked with them. And then for the second one that's just about ready, meaning like it'll be in my dining room next week. Those are all butterfly moth prints. And then there's a third one. And I'm pretty much done with the pattern part of that. And now I'm moving on to the get it knitted and get it photographed. You know, that's the part of making the book that actually takes the most time. And, and those I'm not I'm actually not quite ready to give away the things with like that one just yet. Um but it's it's an it's another it's gonna be another similar thing where, you know, the first one was plants and now we have butterflies. And we have a new a new range of things for number three.
0: That is so cool. Do you have an idea of a target date for when book three will come out?
1: Oh, yeah. It'll be out pretty much a year from now. It should be out in May of
0: 2014. Excellent. Well, I'm sitting here gazing and wonder at your new book. It's really pretty. And the there was one... Now I have to look at my book. There was one pattern that I was wondering. Only one? No, there was there was one that I was, like, blown away by your inspiration for, and it's the one that I showed to my kids, and they went, wow. It's the Vanessa Antiope sock. It's the yellow one.
1: Oh, oh those yellow ones. I know, it's the simplest thing ever, but I think everybody loves those socks best. I, I have this theory about yellow socks. I think that yellow and orange are actually the, the best colors to make socks in if you're going to take pictures of them because they just – throw everything off so well. And I've, I've come to the conclusion that there just always has to be a pair of yellow socks in, in any book I do because they, they just, they always look so pretty. And I'm sure, I'm sure there's some technical reason for it that somebody who knows more about photography would, would maybe be able to explain to me. But I know that I just have a terrible time getting blues and reds to look, I can get them to look good, but they don't always look the same as the actual Mm object, and that always kind of bugs me, you know? I'm like, one of the things that I love about doing this is getting to play with all of the pretty yarn, and I feel that 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 means that part of my job is to show off the pretty yarn accurately, and, you know, because I have never bought something from a catalog, and you look at the picture and then you look at the thing and you're like, they're both lovely but they're not the same. Yeah. So I try really hard to avoid that with with the uh, with the book projects, which means usually calling in the assistance of a qualified grown up to come and take my pictures for me. Because, well, grown ups are better at things than I am. <laughs> Some things. Not all things. things. There there's something to be said for enlisting experts to do those things that are their area of expertise because they're going to get it done so much more efficiently you know you watch a pro do something and you're like huh yeah that's 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 the thing with beauty and I'm just going to sit back and enjoy watching
0: yeah and photography does seem to be one of those things it's also I think one of the things that happens with your books is that the photography you've always got the kind of pretty big picture shot but but you often have a shot that is still a big picture shot but has the foot or the head or the hand turned in such a way that the part that mystifies you as a knitter is exposed
1: and it's and it's actually kind of fun to try and work with the photographer to figure out a good way to do books you know we we did sort of instructional shots for how to put together one of the sets of fingerless gloves in there because mm-hmm. it's a weird way to put it together and I figured that was one of those things that was just going to be easier to show a series of pictures than it would to try and explain it with words. And we, we spent a little bit of time with the photographer and I going, like, okay, so how, how can we show this off? You know, yeah. where where do we want to do this? And it feels like one of those sort of struggles uh, the, the they give you when you're a kid. You know, you, you've got to get the, the, the cannibal and the missionary and the goat all across the river in a canoe and <laughs> keep everybody safe. And, you know, it's like, okay, so how can we take a picture that's pretty, but also a picture that shows the right stuff, and a picture that shows the stuff, and, you know, it makes for a really surreal day, and when the normal people, the, the, the people who don't understand what the heck it is you're doing, are walking by where you're working, there are a lot of funny looks, there's a lot of, uh-huh, <laughs> what's, what's going on over here, do we need to call someone to help you,
0: no, no, we got it, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> That's the the polyamatus argiolus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. It's really. It's, really... I, I had.
1: They're surprisingly comfortable to the wear. They really fit very, very well. They look like a piece of you know crumpled fluff when they're not on your hands. Mm-hmm. But I found that I'm actually okay with things that look really fabulous on, even if they look a little strange when they're off. Well, you know, sure. because I figure I want to Spend my time admiring it when I'm wearing it. Yep. I mean, I know, I know I've made a couple of pairs of socks in the past, especially if they have like arch shaping or something, and they just, they look a little weird on the blocker, and then they look fabulous when you get an actual human foot inside of them. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I I mean, I agree. These things are made to be worn, so as long as it looks good on, who cares what it looks good like off? It's That's so so beside the point. But that yeah, that yeah. actually leads me to a question for you about about the look of things. We've been in touch with each other since since you started working on your your first book, the Silk Road Socks. And so we talked about stuff that you were doing back then, design-wise, but since then it seems that your especially your socks, but your other stuff too, st- is starting to have a recognizable to me, a recognizable Hunter look to it. And so I which I think is really cool. So I'm wondering, are you, are you finding yourself drawn to particular kinds of construction, or is it just any clever construction that gets you what you like? And how much time do you spend swatching as you're figuring out your, your, your patterns?
1: Well, I spend a disgusting amount of time swatching, but that's in part because I don't actually usually knit the objects that you see in the book myself. I am a very slow knitter. I wish that it weren't the case, but I am. And I have some some issues with my wrists that means that knitting for more than a, an hour or two really kind of hurts. Mm-hmm. And so I enlisted the help of a wonderful array of sample knitters. I could not do it without these people. They are all fantastic. So knitting is all so much prettier than mine. I'm, I, I, I'm horribly jealous. So I spend an awful lot of time swatching because that's where I'm working out all the details. I don't do any of it on the needles. Mm -hmm. So all of it has to sort of be planned ahead of time. And then I send it off to these wonderful, wonderful people, and they make it, and they send it back, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, it worked. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually kind of fantastic to open those packages. But it's always kind of weird, because I am never the first person to see my own designs. Like they're the first people to see it because they're the ones who make it. Construction-wise for the socks, I, I confess I am a complete fan of top-down socks with a heel flap. I think that that gives you a huge amount of sort of customizability to the stitch. If you have a tall instep, you make your heel bop taller. If you have really narrow feet, you can do a couple of extra decreases. If you have really wide feet, You can leave a few of those gusted decreases out. I mean, there are a whole bunch of places you can tweak those to fit. And the part of a sock that runs the greatest risk of being too tight and not going on is with that top inch or two that you have to fit over your heel when you're putting it on. And so with a top-down sock, you can, you know, knit an inch of it and try it on and save yourself the heartbreak. Oh, oh gosh, it doesn't fit. Mm-hmm. Now, that said, I know a couple of ways to turn top-down socks around and do them from the toe-up, and I I, have, I love it when people do that, because I sort of go, oh my gosh, you obviously really truly understand how your sock is put together, and I think that's wonderful. Anytime you know you have knitters who don't just follow a pattern, but really sort of understand the pattern and then make it work for them, I think that's marvelous. That's you know, one of the most fun parts about knitting, and so it's it's great to see that, but I I'm a fan of the top-down sock, and I'm probably always going to like those. Yeah. I don't know about having an aesthetic. I, I have people say that. like I have people say, oh, I was looking at the latest issue of Socky and I knew that had to be one of your socks. And I, I find it hugely flattering, but I, have to, I, I don't know that I could define it myself. I think it's just sort of the, ooh, that, that looks pretty to me, so I play with that but I think that's probably going to be the case for a lot of people. I mean, I know there there are other people whose socks I can look at and go, Oh, that's gotta be a cookie sock or, Mm -hmm. you know, whoever it happens to be. But again, I think like it's, that's one of those things that's so much easier to see than it is to necessarily define.
0: So do are you inventing, like, do you, do you live surrounded by Barbara Walker books or do you (laughs) completely invent some of these things out of whole cloth?
1: So it, it's probably about 50-50. I buy every stitch dictionary I can get my hands on, and I will sometimes just slip even and sit down and knit some random swatch out of it. But I think, I think the thing that I like to do most is use the stitch dictionaries as kind of a training box to understand, okay, if you put your increases in this configuration and your decreases in this configuration, this is what your fabric does. I think I think it's it's much more fun to sort of use as, as a learning tool rather than to just take something straight out of statistics sharing. Uh every now I and mean, then you come across something that is so pretty and so perfect that you do want to incorporate it. But a lot of times it ends up getting changed. You know, you're like, gosh, I think that would work better if we made it four stitches wider, finish those to twisted decreases and I'm not a big fan of yarn overs. so what Buy, you know, matching listed increases instead. And so you sort of use them as a, as a springboard. You um, you just play with them. But that's it. I still buy absolutely every one i ever come across. I've actually gotten to the point where it's hard to keep track of which ones I have. And so sometimes you're standing in a used bookstore and you see one, and you're like, okay, just in case I need to bring this home. <laughs> and, oh, well, it's a duplicate. But, gosh, they're their worst problems to have. <laughs>
0: Are you doing? Are you doing any giveaways, good reads, any other publicity-ish things for? So your
1: your timing on this is actually perfect. Whenever somebody orders the physical book from me, and so that's from cancelpress.com, you always get the electronic book for free. Right away, you get an email that tells you how to go get it. And I think people really like that because it's hugely convenient to be able to have the electronic version on your iPad and the paper version on your shelf. Or to print out the two pages of the pattern that you need and shove that in your knitting bag. And during the pre-orders of the book, if you order the physical one, you also get any one of my other patterns for free. And that lasts up until i'm done shipping out all of the pre-orders mm. yeah i know you've got perfect timing on this because that will probably be sometime next week so there's a couple of days left to
0: do that very cool
1: yeah and the um uh, the paper one's also 10 percent off during the pre-orders
0: oh so it's even more more better goodness
1: yeah i think it ends up i think it is well i mean like my, my feeling is whenever somebody pre-orders something they're kind of trusting you. I mean, they're trusting that you're going to do what you say and that you're going to get what they thought to them in a timely fashion. And I figure if they're going to be kind enough to trust me to do that, yeah. then I should get them a little
0: extra bonus. Yeah. That I think is a lovely way to do business with the people who love your patterns.
1: Exactly. I mean, the, the, folks, who, the folks who like it enough to pre-order, you want to take care of those people because they like what you do.
0: Absolutely. I am so excited. I'm so excited, partially because I can look at the book and say, I'm so excited because everybody else is going to love this as soon as it arrives in their box. Not that the, I mean, the electronic version is gorgeous, too, but there's always that paper thing that
1: Oh, I know. Nice. I, I love having the convenience of electronic versions. And it's great because, you know what? Shipping stuff of these is expensive. Mm-hmm. And this is a really good option if somebody doesn't want to pay the outrageous shipping that the post office charges me. But there's something about petting the paper one that I just I never, I'm never going to give that up. That's that's really kind of a neat thing. Yeah.
0: No. Totally, totally agree. Now what is, what is for those who don't know, what is your blog? Oh, it's violentlydomestic.com And the name of the blog came from... Um,
1: the name of the blog actually far predates the, the knitting thing. Yeah, there was this sort of phase in the in the, the mid well, I guess, yeah, the mid two thousands, where any time a phrase struck me as funny, I would just register the domain. <laughs> and I, I know, I know it's, like it, it's a relatively harmless thing to collect. It doesn't take that much space. You don't have to dust them. And, excuse me. Um, but so I had registered that ages and ages and ages ago, and then. Way back when I came up with my very first pattern, I kind of realized, huh, I need a place to stick this so that I can link to it from Ravelry. Mm-hmm. And it was the domain that I had sitting around. And so, you know, at 2 in the morning, one one really long night, I threw up an absolutely rubbish website and said, okay, there it is. And it kind of grew from there. So I wish, I wish there was some deeply awesome story about the... Uh, about the, the blog name, but it's just sort of it was it was there, and it's easy to spell, and it's easy to say, and, and it's, it's easy, easy to remember. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah. And it, it is actually somewhat somewhat of an accurate description of I me. Mean, I do tend to go into fits where I decide, you know, everything must be just so, and tear around like a dervish, making my house perfect. And then the fit passes, and we go back to being a little more sane.
0: And how does the husband feel about all that? <laughs>
1: to mind too much he actually gets the same fits too but it's very convenient because the things that he gets twisty about and the things that I get twisty about are different Yay. so we each sort of will, will tend to the area that's bugging us and it means that neither of us walk by and go you're doing it wrong and it means that more
0: things get done because we both have our own little pet areas that's nice that's, it it that's works a, out pretty well that's a smart way to work it well done yeah. Yeah,
1: you know, I, I could pretend it was a very carefully a very carefully made plan, but I think it's actually
0: just a happy accident. <laughs> That's not a bad thing. So if you didn't catch that, if you go to pantsvillepress.com, all one word, Pantsville Press, you can pre-order the book. Get your electronic version immediately, get ten percent off and get a free one of any of Hunter's other individual patterns. But you have to move right now, like when you're listening to this podcast. And, uh, and if that doesn't work, anytime during the rest of the month of May, so this is, we've got half of May left. Anytime during the month of May... Leave a comment in the show notes for any of the last two episodes in May. That'll be 303 this week and 304 next week. That will end Jane Eyre. Leave a comment explaining why you love Hunter's Patterns and why you would love to have the book. And then I will use a random number generator to pick a winner and send you your very own copy of the second Knitter's Curiosity Cabinet book. Can you believe we're almost done with Jane Eyre? I can't believe we're almost done with Jane Eyre. Time has flown by, but be that as it may, I also have on the show notes, a really amazing Vimeo video for you to take a look at. It is a color film from 1927, driving around London. I've never seen anything like it before. It is shocking in many ways, because you aren't used to seeing clothes like that on people unless it's in black and white or a Baz Luhrmann film, but that's a different story. Fantastic video. Please drop by the show notes for this episode 303 so you can take a look at the gorgeous film. But let's not waste any time. Let's move on to Jane Eyre for this week. Last week, I read you an email from our resident pastor, uh, Renee Rico. She's been listening to the podcast, I think, since the beginning and has been an enormous help when it comes to questions of religion and and, uh, biblical text, Uh, a huge help to me. We also have Julie over at Forgotten Classics, who is the writer of the Happy Catholic blog. And Julie is my Catholic connection for many questions that I've had in the past. And this week, she wrote to me, I was thinking over your question about Sinjin trying to force Jane to marry him by quoting the Bible at her. Talk about something that is about as opposite as you can get to Christian behavior and Catholic behavior if people want to differentiate. It is one thing to point out something that may be an option you haven't thought of, or that you may be doing wrong, but to stand over someone and pound them with the Bible? Totally wrong. It's really important to recognize, as Jane and Charlotte knew, that God speaks to each person in their own heart in a way that they will recognize best. I loved the way Charlotte shows prayer and how God works in our lives throughout the book. Jane prays for guidance on what to do about leaving Lowood, a thought that then springs to mind about putting an ad in the paper. She must take action. She must follow through, but a nudging has been given. That is often the way it works. And the fact that Jane must go through extreme hardship to live up to her Christian standards receives its own reward. She finds her own family. Plus, it gives Rochester the time he needs to learn and grow in order to be more fully human. One does not get the idea that St. John has gone through that hardening process. One feels that his own heart is stony. If I may quote scripture here, he hasn't been open and vulnerable enough to experience what Ezekiel mentions in chapter 36, verse 26. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And then she wrote more after a little back and forth thing and said, I spoke of St. going through a hardening experience. What I really meant is that living a Christian life is hard, but it is in faithfully working through the hard things, as Jane does, that we become more open and vulnerable to the bigger plan that God has in mind. Hence, we see St. John stubbornly clinging to his own plan, Rochester having no idea of a plan at all, but responding to everything that seems good in an effort to make his life better, and Jane in the middle, living life as best she can, but remaining open to God's input for a better way. i really appreciated having Renee and Julie to talk to you through uh, some of the some of the religious stuff that, that uh, Charlotte puts into the book, but I also appreciate that while Jane is uh, very much a Christian character written by a very solidly Christian woman who grew up in the, the parsonage in in Hauerth, um there is nothing about this book that I feel is off-putting to someone who isn't Christian. And by that, what I really mean is what Julie was talking about, that you're you're not watching someone who's walking around being pious and holier than thou. You're walk, watching someone who is walking a very difficult life. And she's not having a difficult life because of her faith, but her faith plays an integral part in how she manages to navigate that difficulty. And I really think that's something that, that anyone of any faith can look at and appreciate and uh, be inspired by. And I think even my atheist friends would find that Jane is a Christian they're comfortable with, that she, she isn't merely talking the talk, she is walking the walk. And by doing that, she puts herself into a category, a, a class, a group of people who are, for lack of a better way to put it, someone who you'd really like to go have a beer with, someone who you can look at and go, you know, I may not be on the same side of the fence as you, but it doesn't matter because the things that make you attractive to me as a person, not necessarily physically attractive, but, but someone who you want to hang out with, that, that those things may be based in your faith, but you are so much more than that, perhaps because of your faith, perhaps not. But I'm fairly certain that sitting down and having a discussion about ethics or uh, talking through a particularly thorny problem with someone like Jane Eyre, or in fact, Charlotte Bronte, would be, if nothing else, fascinating and a lot of fun, because you'd be going head-to-head with someone who's really quite smart, but also somebody who's going to be coming to the table from a, a very centered, very grounded standpoint. And that is always a pleasure, And of course, the really nice thing is that this book being a building's roman, you've gotten to watch Jane as she's grown up. Because if you recall back in Mrs. Reed's house, she was a hot headed little pipsqueak and ready to fight. Uh, Not that there wasn't reason for her to have done that. But even at Lowood with Helen, you know, she would look at Helen's behavior and wish that she could be like that, and she was not capable of it now. And while she is no pushover, she is certainly more centered and able to express her frustrations in ways other than decking Sinjin, which honestly, I would have been fine with, and I, and I am not somebody who likes physical violence, but he kind of pushed my buttons. Well, this week, just a couple of things that are specific to this chapter. I realized I haven't ever defined this one word, and it's it's a word that we don't hear in usage very often uh, if you aren't around horses. And that word is ostler. It's spelled O S T L E R. It uh, is also spelled hostler, which might give you an idea that it it comes from the French hostelier, somebody who works at an inn. Uh, It used to be a monk who lived and worked at an inn, but now it is just basically an innkeeper. And then it became more and more specifically somebody who works at an inn with the horses. So this would be the guy who changes up the horses when you're driving through. And there's also a reference to Paul and Silas. And I I think you can probably get where Jane is going with this without The big explanation, but uh, this is Paul after his conversion. He's traveling with Silas and a couple other guys. I think Timothy's there, and they're trying to uh, spread the good word. I think they're in Macedonia at this point. Maybe it's something that starts with an M. And they get thrown into prison um, improperly. They are Roman citizens. They should not be getting imprisoned at all. And uh, they don't fight back. They don't argue. They Take their beating, they go to prison, they pray for guidance, and God sends an earthquake that knocks all of the doors open. And they mind up uh, through the the whole experience they wind up uh, converting, I think the jailkeeper and, and stuff. But the, the basic important part is that there is a huge earthquake, and it's that earthquake that gives them the opportunity to get out of their prison. I'm sure you can already see where that connection would be made so the other things I have to say cannot be said until we have finished this chapter and then next week next week's the last two chapters it's kind of a chapter and then an epilogue and uh and then we're done with Jane (sighs) I don't know how I feel about that so I am going to play you chapter 36 right now of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte
2: The daylight came. I rose at dawn. I busied myself for an hour or two with arranging my things in my chamber, drawers, and wardrobe, in the order wherein I should wish to leave them during a brief absence. Meantime, I heard St. John quit his room. He stopped at my door. I feared he would knock. No, but a slip of paper was passed under the door. I took it up. It bore these words. "'You left me too suddenly last night.' "'Had you stayed but a little longer, you would have laid your hand on the Christian's cross and the angel's crown. I shall expect your clear decision when I return this day fortnight. "'Meantime, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit, I trust, is willing, but the flesh, I see, is weak. I shall pray for you hourly. Yours, St. John.' "'My spirit,' I answered mentally, "'is willing to do what is right.' and my flesh, I hope, is strong enough to accomplish the will of heaven, when once that will is distinctly known to me. At any rate, it shall be strong enough to search, inquire, to grope an outlet from this cloud of doubt, and find the open day of certainty. It was the first of June, yet the morning was overcast and chilly. Rain beat fast on my casement. I heard the front door open and St. John pass out. Looking through the window, I saw him traverse the garden— He took the way over the Misty Moors in the direction of Whitcross. There he would meet the coach. "'In a few more hours I shall succeed you in that track, cousin,' thought I. "'I, too, have a coach to meet at Whitcross. I, too, have some to seek and ask after in England, before I depart for ever.' It wanted yet two hours of breakfast-time. I filled the interval in walking softly about my room, and pondering the visitation which had given my plans their present bent— I recalled that inward sensation I had experienced, for I could recall it in all its unspeakable strangeness. I recalled the voice I had heard. Again I questioned whence it came, as vainly as before. It seemed in me, not in the external world. I asked, was it a mere nervous impression, a delusion? I could not conceive or believe. It was more like an inspiration— The wondrous shock of feeling had come like the earthquake which shook the foundations of Paul and Silas's prison. It had opened the doors of the soul's cell and loosed its bands. It had wakened it out of its sleep, whence it sprang trembling, listening, aghast. Then vibrated thrice a cry on my startled ear, and in my quaking heart and through my spirit, which neither feared nor shook, but exulted as if in joy over the success of one effort it had been privileged to make, independent of the cumbrous body." "'Ere many days,' I said, as I terminated my musings, "'I will know something of him whose voice seemed last night to summon me. "'Letters have proved of no avail. "'Personal inquiry shall replace them.' "'At breakfast I announced to Diana and Mary that I was going a journey, "'and should be absent at least four days.' "'Alone, Jane?' they asked. "'Yes. "'It was to see or hear news of a friend about whom I had for some time been uneasy.' they might have said, as I have no doubt they thought, that they had believed me to be without friends save them, for indeed I had often said so, but with their true natural delicacy they abstained from comment, except that Diana asked me if I was sure I was well enough to travel. I looked very pale, she observed. I replied that nothing ailed me save anxiety of mind, which I hoped soon to alleviate. It was easy to make my further arrangements, for I was troubled with no inquiries, no surmises— Having once explained to them that I could not now be explicit about my plans, they kindly and wisely acquiesced in the silence with which I pursued them, according to me the privilege of free action I should under similar circumstances have accorded them. I left Moorhouse at three o'clock p.m., and soon after four I stood at the foot of the sign-post of Whitcross, waiting the arrival of the coach which was to take me to distant thornfield Amidst the silence of those solitary roads and desert hills, I heard it approach from the great distance. It was the same vehicle whence, a year ago, I had alighted one summer evening on this very spot. How desolate and hopeless and objectless! It stopped as I beckoned. I entered, not now obliged to part with my whole fortune as the price of its accommodation. Once more on the road to Thornfield, I felt like the messenger-pigeon flying home." It was a journey of six and thirty hours. I had set out from Whitcross on a Tuesday afternoon, and early on the succeeding Thursday morning the coach stopped to water the horses at a wayside inn, situated in the midst of scenery whose green hedges and large fields and low pastoral hills, how mild a feature and verdant of hue compared with the stern north-midland moors of Morton, met my eye like the lineaments of a once-familiar face. Yes, I knew the character of this landscape— "'I was sure we were very near my bourne. "'How far is Thornfield Hall from here?' "'I asked of the ostler. "'Just two miles, mum, across the fields.' "'My journey is closed,' I thought to myself. "'I got out of the coach, "'gave a box I had into the ostler's charge, "'to be kept till I called for it, "'paid my fare, satisfied the coachman, "'and was going. "'The brightening day gleamed on the sign of the inn, "'and I read in gilt letters the Rochester Arms.' "'My heart leapt up. "'I was already on my master's very lands. "'It fell again. "'The thought struck it. "'Your master himself may be beyond the British Channel, "'for aught you know. "'And then, if he is at Thornfield Hall, "'towards which you hasten, "'who besides him is there? "'His lunatic wife, "'and you have nothing to do with him. "'You dare not speak to him or seek his presence. "'You have lost your labour. "'You had better go no further,' "'urged the monitor.' "'Ask information of the people at the inn. They can give you all you seek. They can solve your doubts at once. Go up to that man and inquire of Mr. Rochester to be at home.' The suggestion was sensible, and yet I could not force myself to act on it. I so dreaded a reply that would crush me with despair. To prolong doubt was to prolong hope. I might yet once more see the hall under the ray of her star. There was the stile before me— The very fields through which I had hurried, blind, deaf, distracted, with revengeful fury, tracking and scourging me, on the morning I fled from Thornfield, ere I well knew what course I had resolved to take, I was in the midst of them. How fast I walked! How I ran sometimes! How I looked forward to catch the first view of the well-known woods! With what feelings I welcomed single trees I knew, and familiar glimpses of meadow and hill between them! At last the woods rose— The rookery clustered dark. A loud cawing broke the morning stillness. Strange delight inspired me. On I hastened. Another field crossed, a lane threaded, and there were the courtyard walls, the back offices, the house itself, the rookery still hid. My first view of it shall be in front, I determined, where its bold battlements will strike the eye nobly at once, and where I can single out my master's very window. Perhaps he will be standing at it, "'He rises early. "'Perhaps he is now walking in the orchard, "'or on the pavement in front. "'Could I but see him? "'But a moment! "'Surely in that case I should not be so mad as to run to him. "'I cannot tell. "'I am not certain. "'And if I did, what then? "'God bless him, what then? "'Who would be hurt by my once more tasting the life his glance can give me? "'I rave.' Perhaps at this moment he is watching the sunrise over the Pyrenees, or on the tideless sea of the south. I had coasted along the lower wall of the orchard, turned its angle. There was a gate just there, opening into the meadow between two stone pillars crowned by stone balls. From behind one pillar, I could peep round quietly at the full front of the mansion. I advanced my head with precaution, desirous to ascertain if any bedroom window-blinds were yet drawn up. Battlements, windows, long front, all from this sheltered station were at my command. The crows sailing overhead perhaps watched me while I took this survey. I wonder what they thought. They must have considered I was very careful and timid at first, and that gradually I grew very bold and reckless. A peep, and then a long stare and then a departure from my niche into straying out into the meadow, and a sudden stop full in front of the great mansion, and a protracted, hardy gaze towards it. What affectation of diffidence was this at first, they might have demanded? What stupid regardlessness now! Here an illustration, reader. A lover finds his mistress asleep on a mossy bank. He wishes to catch a glimpse of her fair face without waking her— he steals softly over the grass, careful to make no sound. He pauses, fancying she has stirred. He withdraws, not for worlds would he be seen. All is still. He again advances. He bends above her. A light veil rests on her features. He lifts it, bends lower. Now his eyes anticipate the vision of beauty, warm and blooming and lovely in rest. How hurried was their first glance! But how they fix! How he starts! "'How he suddenly and vehemently clasps in both arms "'the form he dared not a moment since touch with his finger. "'How he calls aloud a name and drops his burden "'and gazes on it wildly. "'He thus grasps and cries and gazes "'because he no longer fears to waken by any sound he can utter, "'by any movement he can make. "'He thought his love slept sweetly. "'He finds she is stone dead. "'I looked with timorous joy towards a stately house.' "'I saw a blackened ruin. "'No need to cower behind a gate-post, indeed, "'to peep up at chamber lattices, "'fearing life was astir behind them. "'No need to listen for doors opening, "'to fancy steps on the pavement or the gravel-walk. "'The lawn, the gardens were trodden and waste, "'the portal yawned void. "'The front was, as I had once seen it in a dream, "'but a well-like wall, "'very high and very fragile-looking, "'perforated with painless windows.' No roof, no battlements, no chimneys—all had crashed in. And there was the silence of death about it, the solitude of a lonesome wild. No wonder that letters addressed to people here had never received an answer, as well dispatch epistles to a vault in a church aisle. The grim blackness of the stones told by what fate the hall had fallen, by conflagration. But how kindled! What story belonged to this disaster— what loss besides mortar and marble and woodwork had followed upon it had life been wrecked as well as property if so whose dreadful question there was no one here to answer it not even dumb sign mute token in wandering round the shattered walls and through the devastated interior i gathered evidence that the calamity was not of late occurrence Winter snows, I thought, had drifted through that void arch, winter rains beaten in at those hollow casements, for amidst the drenched piles of rubbish, spring had cherished vegetation. Grass and weed grew here and there between the stones and fallen rafters. And, oh, where, meantime, was the hapless owner of this wreck? In what land? Under what auspices? My eye involuntarily wandered to the grey church-tower near the gates, and I asked— Is he with Damer de Rochester sharing the shelter of his narrow marble house? Some answer must be had to these questions. I could find it nowhere but at the inn, and thither ere long I returned. The host himself brought my breakfast into the parlour. I requested him to shut the door and to sit down. I had some questions to ask him. But when he complied I scarcely knew how to begin. Such horror had I of the possible answers— and yet the spectacle of desolation I had just left prepared me in a measure for a tale of misery. The host was a respectable-looking, middle-aged man. "'You know Thornfield Hall, of course,' I managed to say at last. "'Yes, ma'am. I lived there once.' "'Did you?' "'Not in my time, I thought. You are a stranger to me.' "'I was the late Mr. Rochester's butler,' he added. "'The late?' I seemed to have received with full force the blow I had been trying to evade. "'The late!' I gasped. "'Is he dead?' "'I mean, the present gentleman, Mr. Edward's father,' he explained. I breathed again, my blood resumed its flow, fully assured by these words that Mr. Edward, my Mr. Rochester—God bless him, wherever he was—was at least alive, was in short, the present gentleman. Gladdening words— "'It seemed I could hear all that was to come, "'whatever the disclosures might be "'with comparative tranquillity. "'Since he was not in the grave, "'I could bear, I thought, "'to learn he was at the Antipodes.' "'Is Mr. Rochester living at Thornfield Hall now?' "'I asked, knowing, of course, "'what the answer would be, "'but yet desirous of deferring the direct question "'as to where he really was. "'No, Mum, oh, no, no one is living there. "'I suppose you are a stranger in these parts, "'so you would have heard what happened last autumn. "'Thornfield Hall is quite a ruin.' was burned down just about harvest-time—a dreadful calamity. Such an immense quantity of valuable property destroyed. Hardly any of the furniture could be saved. The fire broke out at dead of night, and before the engines arrived from Millcote, the building was one mass of flame. It was a terrible spectacle. I witnessed it myself. "'At dead of night?' I muttered. "'Yes, that was ever the hour of fatality at Thornfield. "'Was it known how it originated?' I demanded. "'They guessed, ma'am, they guessed. Indeed, I should say it was ascertained, beyond a doubt. "'You are not perhaps aware,' he continued, edging his chair a little nearer the table and speaking low, "'that there was a uh, a lady—a lunatic—kept in the house? I have heard something of it.' "'She was kept in very close confinement, ma'am. "'People, even for some years, were not absolutely certain of her existence. "'No one saw her. "'They only knew by rumour that such a person was at the hall, "'and who or what she was. "'It was difficult to conjecture. "'They say Mr. Redwood had brought her from abroad, "'and some believed she had been his mistress. "'But a queer thing happened a year since. "'A very queer thing.' "'I feared now to hear my own story. "'I endeavoured to recall him to the main fact. "'And this lady?' "'This lady, ma'am,' he answered, "'turned out to be Mr. Rochester's wife. The discovery was brought about in the strangest way. There was a young lady, a governess at the hall, that Mr. Rochester fell in—but the fire,' I suggested. "'I'm coming to that, ma'am, that Mr. Edward fell in love with. The servants say they never saw anybody so much in love as he was. He was after her continually. They used to watch him—servants will, you know, ma'am—and he set store on her past everything.' for all nobody but him thought her so very handsome. She was a little small thing, they say, almost like a child. I never saw her myself, but I've heard Leah, the housemaid, tell of her. Leah liked her well enough. Mr. Rochester was about forty, and this governess not twenty, and you see, when gentlemen of his age fall in love with girls, they are often as like as if they were bewitched. Well, he would marry her. "'You shall tell me this part of the story another time,' I said. "'But now I have particular reason for wishing to hear all about the fire.' "'Was it suspected that this lunatic, Mrs. Rochester, had any hand in it?' "'You've hit it, ma'am. It's quite certain that it was her, and nobody but her, that set it going. She had a woman to take care of her called Mrs. Poole, an able woman in her line, and very trustworthy, but for one fault—a fault common to a deal of them nurses and matrons. She kept a private bottle of gin by her, and now and then took a drop overmuch. It is excusable, for she had a hard life of it, but still it was dangerous.' "'for when Mrs. Poole was fast asleep after the gin and water, "'the mad lady, who was as cunning as a witch, "'would take the keys out of her pocket "'and let herself out of her chamber, "'and go roaming about the house "'doing any wild mischief that came into her head. "'They say she had nearly burnt her husband in his bed once. "'I don't know about that. "'However, on this night, "'she set fire first to the hangings of the room next to her own, "'and then she got down to a lower storey "'and made her way to the chamber that had been the governess's. "'She was like as if she knew somehow matters had gone on, "'and had a spite at her.' and she kindled the bed there—but there was nobody sleeping in it, fortunately. The governess had run away two months before, and for all Mr. Rochester sought her as if she had been the most precious thing he had in the world, he never could hear a word of her, and he grew savage, quite savage, on his disappointment. He never was a wild man, but he got dangerous after he lost her. He would be alone, too. He sent Mrs. Fairfax, the housekeeper, away to her friends at a distance, but he did it handsomely, for he settled an annuity on her for life— and she deserved it. She was a very good woman. Miss Adele, a ward he had, was put to school. He broke off acquaintance with all the gentry, and shut himself up like a hermit at the hall. What? Did he not leave England? Leave England? Bless you, no! He would not cross the doorstones of the house, except at night, when he walked just like a ghost about the grounds and in the orchard, as if he had lost his senses, which it is my opinion he had— for a more spirited, bolder, keener gentleman than he was before that midge of a governess crossed him you never saw, Mum. He was not a man given to wine, or cards, or racing, as some are, and he was not so very handsome, but he had a courage and a will of his own, if ever man had. I knew him from a boy, you see, and for my part I have often wished that Miss Eyre had been sunk in the sea before she came to Thornfield Hall. Then Mr. Rochester was at home when the fire broke out. Yes, indeed was he, and he went up to the attics, when all was burning above and below, and got the servants out of their beds, and helped them down himself, and went back to get his mad wife out of her cell. And then they called out to him that she was on the roof, and where she was standing, waving her arms above the battlements, and shouting out till so they could hear her a mile off. I saw her and heard her with my own eyes. She was a big woman, and had long black hair. We could see it streaming against the flames as she stood—' I witnessed, and several more witnessed, Mr. Rochester ascend through the skylight to the roof. We heard him call Bertha. We saw him approach her. And then, Mum, she yelled and gave a spring, and the next minute she lay smashed on the pavement. Dead? Dead. Aye, dead as the stones on which her brains and blood were scattered. Good God! You may well say so, Mum. It was frightful. He shuddered. "'And afterwards?' I urged. "'Well, ma'am, afterwards the house was burnt to the ground. There are only some bits of wool standing now.' "'Were any other lives lost?' "'No. Perhaps it would have been better if there had.' "'What do you mean?' "'Poor Mr. Edward,' he ejaculated. I little thought ever to have seen it. Some say it was a just judgment on him for keeping his first marriage secret, and wanting to take another wife while he had one living.' but I pity him for my part. "'You said he was alive?' I exclaimed. "'Yes, yes, he is alive, but many think he had better be dead. "'Why, how?' My blood was again running cold. "'Where is he?' I demanded. "'Is he in England?' "'Ay, ay, he's in England. He can't get out of England, I fancy he's a fixture now.' "'What agony was this? And the man seemed resolved to protract it.' "'He is stone-blind.' "'he said at last. "'Yes, he is stone-blind, is Mr. Redwood.' "'I had dreaded worse. "'I had dreaded he was mad. "'I summoned strength to ask "'what had caused this calamity. "'It was all his own courage, "'and a body may say his kindness in a way, ma'am. "'He wouldn't leave the house "'till everyone else was out before him. "'As he came down the great staircase at last, "'after Mrs. Rochester had flung herself "'from the battlements, "'there was a great crash. "'All fell.' He was taken out from under the ruins, alive, but sadly hurt. A beam had fallen in such a way as to protect him partly, but one eye was knocked out, and one hand so crushed that Mr. Carter, the surgeon, had to amputate it directly. The other eye inflamed. He lost the sight of that also. He is now helpless, indeed—blind and a cripple. Where is he? Where does he live now? At Ferndean, a manor-house on a farm he has about thirty miles off— "'Quite a desolate spot. "'Who is with him? "'Old John and his wife. "'He would have none else. "'He is quite broken down, they say. "'Have you any sort of conveyance? "'We have a shares, ma'am, "'a very handsome shares. "'Let it be got ready instantly, "'and if your post-boy can drive me to Ferndean "'before dark this day, "'I'll pay both you and him "'twice the hire you usually demand.'
0: "'I know.' I know it's wrong of me to stop there, but I would have to play the entire rest of the book this week and that won't fit. So, so you just have to wait. But now at least we have some idea of what had been going on with Rochester and Mrs. Fairfax and why Jane hadn't heard from them. And I think we also have a clearer picture of just how far Jane ran to get away from Rochester and Thornfield a year ago. That's a 36 hour carriage ride. That was a chunk of terrain the woman covered. So I thought that was kind of interesting too because I never really got a clear picture how far she went and the answer now is she went pretty far. I also thought it was interesting that Jane has that moment where she, John slips the note under the door and she's thinking about, about leaving and said she had her stuff ready to go, for real, go, like go to India. So at this point, Sinjin had convinced her to get married and go. It wasn't just that he was doing a really good job and then she heard Rochester's voice. She had her mind turned and then she hears Rochester's voice. Now, some people are extremely critical of that moment. There will be an answer, not this week, uh, but it it is always grounded in the kinds of stories that Charlotte was reading when she was a child and how much she enjoyed those. And, and so it's it shouldn't be a huge surprise to anyone that something like this would pop up at the end. Uh, it also shouldn't surprise anyone that she seems to have been right, that something was going on and that perhaps... She is needed. And for those of you keeping score, Bertha Mason, dead. Mr. Rochester, now officially unmarried. So, there it is. Unmarried, but in horrible, horrible shape. And now Jean gets to write off to find him and see what's what for herself with her own eyes. And with that, I will leave you. We have have a lot to get through next week. And, uh... And I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you enjoy the delicious waiting for the next chapter. Take care. Have a great one. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Like Craftlit? Leave us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or post a link to us when you comment on literary blogs. You can listen via Stitcher Radio, craftlit.com, just hyphen the hyphen books.com, or via our Android or iPhone app. You can also use the free Craftlet app to access premium subscriber content. Just the books and Craftlet are made possible by the support of our listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. Just the books and Craftlet are produced by Penny Shima glance and Elizabeth Green Musselman, and Heather Wardover. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one.